And we're live. Welcome to Viral Transmissions, episode number 25. I'm Joe Fulgham. Joining me as usual is Dr. Rob Tarswell. Our guest this evening is Tyler Black, who, uh, Rob, introduce our guest. I don't have a write-up on him. He just got here. Sure. So uh, Dr. Black is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at the BC Children's Hospital. Uh, his work focuses on emergency psychiatry. He also has a scholarly interest in suicide and suicide prevention. And I believe he's a clinical assistant professor yeah. at uh, the University of British Columbia. Yeah. And we were uh, residents in the same program for a couple of years together back in Dalhousie. We won't hold way that against him, though. on the other side though. of Canada. Way back in the, the wild days. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Viral Transmissions is uh, supported in part by the BC Humanist Association. Uh, please go check them out at uh, bchumanist.ca. All right, let's get in. We've got actually a pretty big roundup of interesting stuff. We start off with by, by the numbers, as we do every week. Uh, world cases are up to 27 million with 881,000 deaths. The USA has climbed, I believe last week was 6 million. They have added on another quarter million to that, 6.26 million cases, 188,000 deaths. Uh, and Rob, we were talking about this before the show, that, that there's a lot of information coming out now that if you look at excess yeah. deaths, it it's it's probably pushing quarter million already. It's getting in that neighborhood, yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. Because of that ridiculous uh, 6% oh. uh, disinformation, uh, yeah. a lot of folks with actual credentials and knowledge have been looking a lot harder at the numbers, and it seems like the 188,000 is massive underreporting of actual mm -hmm. COVID-related deaths yeah. because there are all these excess deaths Mm -hmm. compared to what we would expect, say, last year, the year before, the year before, that are unaccounted for. And, I mean, it's still only September. So the, the, the excess deaths, even if you stretch them out over a, a whole year, are enormous. And, um, yeah, yeah. So the 188 is is a lowball figure. That's, that's the low figure, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I really yeah. do feel they're going to hit World War II numbers. Like, I'm not happy about that, but I'm, I've been saying it for quite a while. There's more Americans are going to die from this than died in World War II, which is 400 and a little thousand. So, well, so far, yeah, there's nothing slowing it down. There's no. nothing stopping. There's nothing that's decelerating the train at all. If yeah. anything, it's accelerating. Uh, and we're heading into seasonal virus season. Yeah. And as, also you know, we all start congregating indoors. And, and the denialism has grown. And denialism is a societal trait that will increase the speed of this viral transmission as well. Hey, viral transmissions. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, lastly, Canada's numbers at 132,000 cases with 9,145 deaths. Uh, still not yes. great. BC's numbers are rising a bit. That's a little sad. BC is at an all-time high just in time for school. And, uh, you know, in a few minutes, we'll be throwing it to my man, Tyler, to tell us all about school. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, we're just going to leave that there dangling in front of you. Uh, so a few other numbers to mention. <laughs> ah, yes, our favorite number. Can we throw this uh, this figure up? The graph, you the, mean? The, 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 yeah, the North and South Dakota. Graph. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, Let's do that. Yeah, so surprise, surprise, the Dakotas, North and South Dakota, now lead the U.S. in the number of new infections per million people. And um, as one wag on twitter put it i wonder if there may have been some kind of super spreader event in <laughs> august that could explain that uh yeah. and a couple weeks ago we discussed the uh, sturgis biker rally which brought about was it a quarter million bikers smaller attendance than usual it's usually like over a half a million it's a massive event but mm -hmm. it was still really big and here we are um 
Once again, we have not outsmarted the virus. It is smarter than us. It never gets bored. It never sleeps. And all it wants is bodies. And it found a whole bunch more. Yeah. Just brutal. Like, everybody, all these experts warning you not to do this. And then, I don't care. I yeah, might go. I, I just wish I, I, I said this a while ago about some other outbreak. Oh, it's one that we're going to mention later. But like it's getting so now that if I had a genie in a bottle, I wouldn't probably wish for COVID to go away. I would simply wish for COVID to only affect people who don't take it seriously. Because like. Th they're a problem. <laughs> they're a problem with not just COVID. Like, damn. <laughs> Uh, it would be best if everybody just listened. <laughs> it, okay. Well, yeah. But I believe in freedom. That's the brass ring, isn't it? <laughs> I believe in freedom, Tyler. I'm not going to yeah. use my wish to control people's minds. <laughs> oh, I will. I, I will. I, okay. Fine. I will. I wish autocratically. <laughs> too bad wishes have no power. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, I, you guys so, were talking about the the deaths um, at 120,000 or so. Um, and if, uh, if you look at the curve of new deaths, um, which I've just put up there as a little thing, yeah. um, it's just not slowing at right. all. Um, I mean, it's, it's so, it's scarily easy to predict that by the middle of October to the end of October, it will, it'll be past a, a million worldwide deaths. Now that's deaths in the world, um, mm -hmm. which puts it in the top four of all flus that have ever, you know, been in last you know, century and a half. Wow. This is an all time epidemic. Yeah. And it's just not stopping. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you look at things like infection rates and, you know, the little graphs where it's, it goes up and it goes down and everybody's like, yeah, it's going down. And it goes back up again. Mm -hmm. And you just know, we know from doing this show for over six months now that those infection rates two or three weeks later are going to mean bigger increases in deaths because that's how long it takes to kill people generally. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, we're seeing the first death from Sturgis uh, as well. As one of the yeah, first Sturgis death, confirmed Sturgis death. I mean, who knows? Those folks, as we saw yeah. in that data video last week, came from 61% of counties across the U.S. and returned to those same counties. So uh, it's going to get pretty quickly, especially because a lot of folks in, in the U.S. are just not participating with contact tracing. They're not picking up the phone. Mm -hmm. They're not disclosing their contacts. So there's just going to be un deaths where, all right, we don't know where this came from. It was just a death from COVID-19 in the community. Yeah. Um, moving on to schoolish things, mm -hmm. the college numbers in the U.S., uh, to, to the surprise, perhaps, of... Uh, a couple of physicists who decided to dabble in epidemiology, <laughs> but not to the surprise of anybody who actually understands how young adults behave. 51,000 cases as of September 3rd across 1,000 post-secondary educational institutions, 1,020 to be precise. Uh, so far, no deaths that I'm aware of. These are young adults, so they don't tend to be uh, as affected by the mortality yeah. of the virus. They're but, only going to uh, have lifelong heart problems. You know. Potentially, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and who knows what else, right? Yeah. About 15% are running into long COVID, which is sort of the chronic complications of the coronavirus. So that's, you ever played D&D? &D? That's one on a D6. Mm, roll how that many, one. How many Boom, times? welcome to chronic COVID. How many times has that happened? Oh my God. Uh, well, how, yeah, how many times has that happened, like, in any three-hour session? Yeah, yeah, in a row yeah. sometimes. Okay, uh, I'm going to attack the goblin with my pike. Okay, D6 for damage. One, 
<laughs> wow. Okay, prepare to defend. Um, yeah. Save versus death. So, That's fine. I'll only fail on a one. Uh-oh. New character time. Uh, yeah. Uh, so also we're, we're showing um, hundreds of positive tests at Florida schools in August. And my really my favorite, but also like most uh, face palming story in terms of the U.S. Co uh, colleges were the the uh, a pair of physicists. Uh, I don't know why they decided to dabble in epidemiology. Yeah, but uh, they did. And uh, they made a model for the University of uh, Illinois. And uh, which is big, like 40,000 students based on a model created by two very confident physicists who said, quote, epidemiology is important, but intellectually unchallenging. And they, they said, well, there'll be no more than a, no more than a hundred cases. And there's uh, 780 right now is what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't be laughing. These are, these are people who are like 18, 19, 20 years old who, yeah. Who, who may are now grappling with a potentially life-altering disease. If a really uh, complicated know. science seems really easy to you, you're probably doing it wrong. Like, I say that as a guy who does not do complicated science. Like, damn. The, yeah. the frustrating part is, is they know enough to be mathematically astute to right. find some mathematical finding they just have none of the competence or even foundation in epidemiology mm -hmm. to understand sometimes even the words they're using um it's really that yeah it's really yeah. frustrating so, so they'll so, nail yeah, some yeah, complicated we... equation and it probably models well but then um, they're like well it only affects 90 year olds i'm like well 20 year olds give it to 90 year olds like it's it's a transmissible disease this mm -hmm. is like the basics of virus um, and that's the part they forget is that it's transmissible. For right. Example. Or just basic anthropological ideas in epidemiology, like young people at university go to mixers. I mean, it's not even young people. I, I've talked about this on, on previous shows, but there's apartment buildings basically uh, like adjacent to the back of my place, right? The next road over. And last night there was a giant party out there and like they were playing big loud music and all singing full voiced along to each other. <coughs> I didn't go over and inspect whether or not they were like singing literally at each other, but it did not feel like any of them there were like taking any precautions whatsoever. Well, this is, this is at BC. Uh, this is the rates of COVID in the not less than 30, the 30 to 60 and 60 plus. Mm -hmm. And you can see the the parallel lines there. Because, of course, the youngest people get it and then they come home to their parents and families. Yeah. And then those parents and families visit their parents and families and it, it jumps generations. And so that that leg is just perfectly parallel. And yeah. um, and it's why even though definitely if you'd want to be an age to get COVID, you'd want to be under 30. Um, but, you know, that's just not where it stops. Yeah. Think about that shampoo commercial. They tell two friends. And they tell two friends, so, so on, so on. Although I have mentioned that to younger younger friends, and they don't get it. They do not know that commercial. That I think it was the '80s when that epi that commercial stopped airing. 
Damn. So we're we're so everybody's forgotten geometric growth. It's just it's just the knowledge has passed out of a species. It was one of the first corporate attempts at viral marketing, right? They they really wanted to encourage people to tell their friends about their product so that they would then tell their friends and they would stop spending so much money on advertising. Nice. What if we just so influence them? You've noticed we have a guest this week, and he shot to prominence for daring to say that school isn't 100% fantastic. And that actually got him a spot on CNN where they were like, what? (laughs) So, but of course being CNN, you know, he was given 13 and a half seconds to unpack the argument uh, and discuss it. So uh, I thought it was really interesting what you had to say. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of on the record somewhere just kind of unpack that whole discussion and um, over to you. I mean, I started to get really quite nervous in, in the beginning of June to the end of June when almost all of the discussions about what would happen in September were devoid of knowledge of, of actually how kids do in school. So there was this constant refrain of kids are struggling under lockdown, which we'll talk about in a second. And to solve that, they need to go back to school. And, and this is a very frustrating thing and a really basic thing for a child psychiatrist like myself, because when, when I'm at work, my busiest days are on school days. Kids come in in suicidal crises, taking overdoses, fights with their families, major depression, super duper anxiety, hmm. eating disorders, all sorts of things ramp up during school years and they instantly go away spring break christmas summer we we you know there are there are months in in the summer where there there aren't consults in the emergency department for pediatric psychiatry for more than a day and you know like we're just sitting around with nothing to do Hmm. um so uh you know a few years ago i started modeling what's the effect of school on suicides and I'm working right now on a, a pretty big model using CDC data. We know that the kids are about 30% more likely to die by suicide on a school day versus a non-school day uh, based off of the work that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's not a small thing. And it's not that schools are bad. It's that schools are stressful. And often when mm. I've been giving the analogy, it's like school is a child's full-time job. They've got their boss, their boss's boss, like their teacher and the principal. They've got um, all this hierarchical stuff that you have to do because you're at work. Like you got to show up at eight. Um, you got to, you know, you got to get all your homework done. Uh, there's ex- tests that take an hour for some arbitrary reason, even though it's testing knowledge, not time. Um, all these things that are just hierarchical and just passed down. Plus the social environment of school, which kids really care about. I don't know if any of you remember how important your 13, 14, 15 year old friends were mm. compared mm. to now. When yeah. you think back, you're like, wow, yeah. that really wasn't that important. But at the time, super important. Mm-hmm. So you have your colleagues. Remember, students mostly make friends by proximity, not because they're compatible people or they're into the same things. You sat next to me in class, I'll be your friend. That's how friendships start, especially yeah. middle school, um, beginning of secondary school. So uh, you ha- you ha- those are like coworker colleagues. Those are like your work colleagues. And then you have your good friends and then you take your work home and you do overtime. Um, it really is a full-time job. Um, mm-hmm. this, is, this is a source of stress for parents. Parents get in fights over bedtime and they don't actually care about the bedtime. They care about going to school the next day. 
they'll get in fights over chores. And it's the discipline of you're not getting your chores and you're not getting your homework done. School is a large part of kids' stress. Mm -hmm. So once I started hearing this argument, um, it was by intentionally good people. These were doctors on CNN or you know people writing opinion pieces. And, and I get what they were saying, which is that kids should, um, should go to school. And that's a, a blanket statement that I'm okay with. But then they were quickly throwing in because it's better for their mental health. And that's where I really wanted to have this long pause. I wrote this series of tweets that went super viral, about 500,000 views. And, and got me all these things like the op-ed and the, the, Toronto, Sun, the Toronto Star and the um, uh, CNN stuff. But it's based on this idea that, that the virus itself is bad. It's going to cause stress. People are dying. People are getting sick. Schools will not look the same. And we already know that the way schools are being set up around the world. Um, and, uh, and schools themselves are a cause of stress. So if we wanted to hierarchically rank our stresses, we do this all the time as doctors. It's the first thing you should do for a kid who gets diagnosed with cancer um, and they have a test the next day. You excuse them from their test. It's just not that important. Mm -hmm. Every time health and safety comes first, we prioritize that over schoolwork. And I kept wanting to introduce this idea that, you know, there's, there's this natural stress that will be added. But at the same time, kids have to learn. But we don't have to learn everything we, we can deprioritize that why why isn't it like two hours of class a day where you learn the basics you just keep your keep your social engine humming and you pick up a few new skills why does it have to be eight hours of in-person class mm -hmm. why does it have to be why do they have to be tests right now it's already stressful enough we don't need tests on top of that um and so i kept wanting to introduce nuance and i was very surprised that the nuance caught on because you know when you tweet something out and it goes viral, you get all of the responses. Um, you see them all. <laughs> and, and for this one, it was really interesting because I'm, you know, I'm on there as a psychiatrist. I get lots of anti-psychiatric, you, you know, clapback and stuff like that. Lots of you're a child murderer, like you're an awful person stuff. And for this one, it, it was probably 5,000 retweets in total. And, and they were all just like, oh, it's really good to think the nuance. Of course, if you think it through, it was mostly people realizing, wait a second, before the pandemic, we had some struggles with school. School hours, classes being overcrowded, too much work, uh, kids not having enough free time, suicide rates, eating disorders, anxiety at school, mm -hmm. bullying. These were all major things before the pandemic. So this idea that going back to the pandemic would all of a sudden fix child child youth mental health was just um, it's a pipe dream, and um, I, I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and and talking about it in various outlets, and and I keep I just keep going back to the fact that sometime this month in BC a major school district a very large school is going to have a kid who gets the sniffles and the whole thing's going to shut down, it's it's going to be three to fourteen days of isolation and testing. And then one of these ones will be positive, and then it'll be 10 more days of clearance. That's not a school year. So it's like, no. even if we did this, stress free. <laughs> even if we did it the way we wanted to, we're still going to be shutting, shutting it down a whole lot. So I, yeah. I would just, you know, I just really wanted everybody to think a lot about, I, I would have no problem during a pandemic if people just said, do the school that you can do. Just whatever you can get done, get it done. We'll be here for you. And, and you're mentioning all these stresses that we know about from school, regular, all pre-pandemic stresses, which you're absolutely right on. And the first thing that popped into my mind as you're listing them off was one of the obvious, I think, to me now, new ones, which is 
a great many of those kids are going to be taught by their parents that this COVID thing is a hoax and anybody who wears a mask is a pussy. And there's going to be conflict between those kids and the ones who are trying to take it seriously and wear a mask and keep themselves safe. We're going to have like inter-belief group fights at schools, which also not safe. If somebody rips your mask off and then spits in your <laughs> spits in your mouth and calls you a pussy. Yeah, I mean, not not just that, but it, just the nuance of the types of kids who go to school. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a very large range of neurodiverse diversity at school, large range of anxiety and frustration tolerance. You know, um, there are there are times that a child gets upset and aggressive. Um, well, you can't socially distance when someone's aggressive. I've been working on an emergency psychiatric unit um, during this whole mm. pandemic. You do occasionally have to violate social uh, social distancing rules. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's not even just the taunting end or the bullying end of it. It's just going to be natural schooling will involve right. contact and breaking down of some of these rules. And, and some kids will be rigid. I don't know if you've met kids that just are astoundingly one track. Oh, no, we must wear masks. It's very important. And you're going to have other kids who are, who are just very you know, not rigid about it. And, oh, I just forgot my mask. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's going to add that social dynamic for sure. And on top of it, there's just a large range of diversity at school. Just yeah. a whole bunch of different brains there. We, uh, I, remember, I can't remember what the details were, but it was on a previous show, but somebody had reported that they had gone into a, a home to, I, I think, to do some kind of service there and were wearing their mask and everything. And the kids in the home were singing a song about masks were for pussies because their parents had just indoctrinated them so much. Wow. And he's there with his mask to, I, I can't remember what it was, fix the cable or something. But yeah. uh, my, uh, my informal prediction about how schools are going to go, I finally realized the analogy that I was looking for, and it's the Nanaimo bathtub races. Everybody starts the Nanaimo bathtub race in great hope. We all know <laughs> all the bathtubs are going to sink. None of them are going to make it to the mainland. But you can't start that way. And you all jump in your bathtubs and you row like mad. And you go as far as you can before that thing sinks. Yeah, yeah I, I hope I, I'm wrong. But I was using Jay Z. I was saying grand open and grand closing. That's my prediction. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's, um, uh, it's it's really naive to think that we actually have a lot of say on what opens and closes. It's it's the silliest, most political yeah. thing we can say. We're going to open businesses. Well, I'll tell you, if the virus hits BC like it's hitting, and it actually starts getting bad, and people start getting really sick. Businesses will not be open. It, it doesn't matter what a politician says. Mm -hmm. And in the same way with a school district, they can open schools. Yeah. But if kids start getting mm -hmm. sick, parents won't send their kids to school. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. And we saw this even before, like in early March, there, there's, there's been this kind of argument between, econ you know, on one <laughs> side, economists and public health professionals, and on the other side, Twitter, about what killed the economy was it the virus or was it the public health measures and again and again and again and again public health measures if anything have saved the economy the coronavirus has been the destroyer of the economy because when people are scared of getting sick they stay home demand was already falling there was survey data from washington mm -hmm. state in early march showing that folks were not making reservations at restaurants were not going out and this was before any major public health maneuvers were uh, started in Washington state or, or in the U.S. at the federal level. Because no matter what's being said on TV, if people are scared, they're going to stay home. And it doesn't take that much destruction of demand 
for the whole thing to fall apart because something like a restaurant and lots of businesses run at low margins as it is and have to be running near yeah. capacity to stay profitable. And as soon as that dips, how many uh, how many back and forth to school will a parent have before they decide? You know what? I'm just not sending my kid back. This, um, yeah, yeah, this this sucks. Uh, yeah, I'm taking a this, bunch of time off work anyway. This person, you know, there there are people that can't make that decision. You know, I, I in a lot of my advocacy, I keep wanting to bring back into the frame that every pandemic, every hurricane, every disaster always disproportionately affects the most socially marginalized groups. And so mm. people who are, you know, just at the poverty line working or people who don't have options uh, for, for childcare, uh, they're the ones that have to just soldier on to school despite everyone else. Um, and, and, you know, they don't get the choice. But for those who have the choice, um, two, three maybe? shutdowns before they go you know what we're just not doing this this is not good for my kid right yeah so that's the whole argument i'm glad you had a chance to kind of air that which in the, the idea yeah school's good but school comes with a set of problems of its own that aren't going away that haven't yeah. gone away mm-hmm. and have all sorts of new weird multipliers that are going to affect them but um whether it's jay-z or um or the nanaimo bathtub race uh, this this school year, it's I haven't got a good feeling about this. I have not got a good feeling about this. No, I, I, one of the saving graces I always say is think back. You know, we're we're now in in a higher decade of life. Think back to your earlier decades of life of all the things you learned that were really important for the rest of your life that didn't happen in school. And and if you ever do that and you think about all the opportunities you had, all the things you did, all the, all the projects you worked on. You'll, you'll be surprised how few school memories you have laying down these foundations of things that you learned for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so the good news is kids' brains are incredible sponges. They'll pick stuff up. They're not, you know, there is lag when kids come back from summer and, and it is disorienting to come back to school, but kids can catch up. Kids who get cancer can be out for a year and come back and go to school. Um, so we can, we can do that. Yeah. Listen up, kids. If you didn't learn the quadratic equation this year, I'm here to tell you, there's about a 99% chance you won't need it. And for those of you who do go into engineering and physics, you'll learn it there. And also, just Google it. Like, I do is, wish that universities is... would announce, like right away, we're going to have very lax admission criteria um, to take the pressure off of grade 11 and 12 students who are still oh. really trying really hard to make that high cutoff. You know, if you're someone who's trying to get into UBC um, here in BC, you know, you care a lot about those science 12 marks. Mm. Um, and and I really wish that UBC would come out and just say, we're going to look at your holistic application. We'll look at your marks from grade 10. We'll expand our what we're looking at. We'll understand if marks are lower right now. We'll take pass fails. Yeah, there's lots of things that the university could do that would relieve mm. pressure on, on grade 11 and 12 students that they're not doing yet. That's a great point. I hadn't thought of that because I, I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, great. If, if you want to know the, 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 the kids that are getting the hurts hurt just the hardest during this pandemic, um, you, you know, outside of the socially marginalized groups where it's, it's poverty and racism and all the things that do that, um, there's uh, the, the, the obsessive, the rigid. Uh, we're seeing a ton of eating disorders flare up during the lockdown. Um, and, and because there's a rigidity to that brain, uh, things have to be a certain way. 
95% is worse than 96%. And, and they're the ones that are really, really struggling during this pandemic. Um, mm. So yeah. I really wish there would be an official announcement that would relieve pressure on those people uh, because we're seeing a lot of that kind of type A personality in the colloquial sense, type A personality uh, that, um, uh, that, that really struggle with the, um, the lack of knowledge of what October is going to look like. Um, it's, mm. it's really quite disorienting to them. It's not just you, kids. None of us know what October is going to look like. Yeah. <laughs> like my Speaking life. Speaking of which, my life. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You're right. Yeah. Um, now the 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 October surprise, as you know, there's a U.S. federal election, and um, it's been a, a, almost a tradition uh, going back at least to Reagan that uh, in the, the the elections in November. So in October, there's always some kind of surprise that gets launched to try and completely derail the other candidates campaign and one thing that's really interesting is um as you all know um the u.s administration has just completely lost interest any interest in even pretending to care about the coronavirus or acknowledges existence um interestingly enough though one thing that trump does seem to care about is whether or not there's going to be a vaccine and there's this kind of increasing drumbeat within the U.S. administration to get a vaccine on the table. So the, the, the theory is, in some journalistic quarters, that this year's October surprise might be a vaccine. And um, that would completely, in my view, completely politicize the process of vaccines and, and perhaps go further than any other thing you could say or do to maximize vaccine hesitancy. Uh, and it's actually gotten so bad that an industry group has um, joined its forces. Vaccine developers have, are preparing a joint pledge on vaccine safety and have basically distanced themselves from this entire conversation. So somehow um, the Trump administration has managed to make big pharma more more ethical and more accountable because i think they're just Wait, it's absolutely amazing to we're me we're bad but we're not as bad as that guy yeah this in is fact, the second we're... time that farmers had to do this distance themselves when was the first there were there were many generic manufacturers of hydrochlorothiazide that okay hydroxychloroquine Hydroxychloroquine there. That's the one. Brain. Yeah, yeah. You've got set it in um, the brain. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, the HCQ thing, uh, there were there were manufacturers saying, hey, you know, this medication is being used for people who have significant autoimmune disorders. Um, could we not stockpile them for, you know, before the, the studies show that it mm. actually benefits coronavirus? Um, uh, so again, you know, this is the second time where the, yeah. you know, the FDA looks worse than the farmer. I, I also had an idea. So Trump wants to base, I was thinking this as you were describing it, because we've been t knowing about this for a while, though. Trump wants to put his name on the vaccine. And my first response, of course, is that's ridiculous. We shouldn't politicize this. <laughs> but then my thought was, but what if that gets his followers to take it? If that's what it takes. Well... The it may Trump be, and all vaccine. the rest of us are going to be like, okay, Trump vaccine. Is that like Trump steaks? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like, are we going to, well, 
but are we going to have come like... out in October before the testing? It is a lot like Trump fakes <laughs> yes. or Trump University. <laughs> you know, it's it, the the reason vaccines are so universally accepted by scientists is because of how rigorous the science is to support mm -hmm. them. You know, the whole anti-vax debate is a debate can be a debate about freedom for some and those types of things. On the scientific end, it's really only the very fringe of science that would ever have any question about the the science of vaccines. But if you do something like move move up the safety information, don't finish a phase three trial, you're basically removing everything that makes vaccines such a slam dunk to the point where I would really wonder, I'm not anti-vax at all. I wonder if I would take a vaccine that didn't have phase three data. I, I'm not sure I would. No, I, um, I would not. I, I would. So, you know, the phase three data is critically important. This is the, the phase three is the first time it's hit a large scale for a target population showing both efficacy and safety. Um, and it's it's so important for a vaccine. So to, to skip through, through that would be like, you know, sci give us $20,000 to go to Trump University. It, it sounds good <laughs> because Trump did stuff, uh, but it sh turns out that it's all a sham. And in the same way, there could be lots of harm done to vaccines generally. I think about all the other vaccines that people may want to take in their life. Yeah, this might really degrade the trust in vaccines. Yeah, there's a lot on the line here. That's even just that goes beyond the coronavirus vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking, I mean, of vaccine safety, I remember uh, speaking of Twitter threads. And this is a couple of years ago. Of course, it's one of these things that you think, oh, I should grab that. And then you just never do. Uh, there was a lawyer, a plaintiff's lawyer who has basically made his career suing pharma. And he was saying this is a couple of years ago. But because you know, there, there are typical problems that, that pharma falls into. They either don't have the safety data they say they're going to have, or they haven't adequately explored the risks that they claim they've explored. And there's just sort of a number of seams that you can split and go after pharma. He said, but, the, but I have no problem at all accepting vaccines for myself or my children, because that's kind of the one hallowed ground <laughs> in the medical space where pharma does it right because they have to do it right because it's so scrutinized yeah. and a vaccine is such an intimate intervention right that for whatever reason that's the thing that it, the norms the ethical and, and and corporate norms are just just do it right and, and, and save the wrong vaccines are so widespread too right like it's not like you make a drug that is for people who suffer from this one thing that even if it's a lot maybe five percent of the people get it you're making something that effectively you're going to give to the whole population so if it's one percent lethal that's really really bad turns so, out that's pretty bad yeah, yeah. Sort of like coronavirus lethality, 1%. Yeah, I know, so right? That's pretty, pretty bad. Like, I don't want to take a coronavirus vaccine that we're not sure doesn't cause cancer. Like, no thanks. I can wear a mask for a little longer. It's okay. You know, some, some of the vaccines, you know, I'd be a little bit more two feet jumping into, the ones that are using similar technologies. But there are some new vaccines that are actually using completely novel mechanisms to develop hmm. immunity. You know, RNA vaccines aren't well studied generally. And they're yeah. coming down the pipeline. Ugh. Yeah. Yep. yep. And and maybe so. they're super safe for a while, but maybe uh, 20 years down the line, we start going, oh, all these people who got these RNA vaccines are growing extra arms. I don't know. Well, 
<laughs> think of the, the reputation the FDA had when you know the rest of the world had a thalidomide crisis. The FDA um, and their regulation is what stopped the thalidomide crisis in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, they they said, you know what? There's not enough safety data. And it's why the U.S. stands kind of alone in having not had a significant um, thalidomide explosion the way that, that other oh, countries did. And now it's almost the reverse. You have basically every drug organization in the world is going to probably look at what the FDA is doing and say, no, I don't think there's enough safety information. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, America has fallen, basically. It's, it is no longer a world leader in almost anything except for corruption, potentially. Although there's probably some countries out there making a run at that as well. And a big-ass military. They do have a very big military. They have a very big military. (laughs) You know, it's funny. MySpace is in suicidology. And um, very frequently, one of the laziest arguments that will come at me as a psychiatrist will be, oh, the suicide rate is increasing and uh, and, and psychiatrists are prescribing more medication or psychiatrists are giving more treatments. And there'll always be this lazy correlation between suicide rates increasing and there being more medications. But of course, it's only in America that suicide rates are significantly increasing right now. In the rest of the world, suicide rates are coming, you know, flat or coming down. Right. Um, uh, globally, suicides went from about 140,000 a year down to now about 760,000 per year, uh, 780 maybe. So, you know, the, the, it's, it's only America that, that has that thing. And so um, it's, always, it's always interesting to me when American exceptionalism has really turned its head. Um, you know, it used to be number one in a whole bunch of things. And now it's honestly really struggling in, in, in basic health areas. Yeah. If you watch their quality of life, they're the only developed nation that has a decreasing um, life expectancy. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, pretty intense. So, okay. We're not speaking of all things vaccine, new Trump pandemic advisor pushes controversial herd immunity strategy, Ugh. which this is, uh, you know, Scott, I, I wear two hats, right? One hat is a psychiatrist and the other one is in medical imaging. I'm a nuclear medicine specialist <laughs> and with a specific interest and focus on functional brain imaging. And I got to say, you know, Scott Atlas, a retired neuroradiologist, basically my medical cousin. And um, <laughs> Jesus, somebody get that guy away from the microphones. Um, herd immunity, which I don't know if I've explained it enough yet. Herd immunity isn't a thing that happens from just the wild spread of a disease. Herd immunity is a concept that specifically evolved from vaccines, right? You, you vaccinate enough people and you create a buffer whereby infected person A can't get through to unvaccinated person B or person who had vaccine failure. Um, Herd immunity doesn't come from letting an infection just run wild through a population and then hoping that some people end up getting uh, enough buffering so that the disease stops spreading. And here's an example that I picked up from Paul Offit. Look at measles. You can only ever get measles once in your life. The disease itself confers lifelong 100% immunity. If there was ever a good model for herd immunity, it's measles. Mm -hmm. Yet, in the pre-vaccination era in the United States, there would still be a million cases of measles a year and about 50,000 people hospitalized. Herd immunity isn't a thing that happens from just the wild spread of disease. Herd immunity comes from 
vaccines and from vaccination. So run away from anyone who talks about just let the disease run wild and uh, herd immunity. Eventually enough people will get it that that will slow it down. Looks like yeah. uh, Tyler's got a, you got a, you got a graph here you want to show us? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what you're showing. Um, you have, uh, you have measles it has been around for centuries. Measles just percolating in the population. Vaccines developed and, and measles cases, measles deaths, all time lows. Mm -hmm. No, there was no natural herd immunity prior to measles. And as Rob said, it's, 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 it's a serious immunity. It's, it's such a strong immunity that, that measles itself has, you know, post-infectious um, states, you know, you can, you can have autoimmune conditions just from having measles. So very powerfully in the system. And yet it was vaccines that turned it off. It was not the natural mm -hmm. poop out of, of measles. Polio would look exactly the same. Yeah. Ah, right. So, yeah. So it's got Atlas stick a cork in it. Uh, you won't though. I don't, <laughs> you won't. I don't understand these people. I don't understand how they become thought of as experts. Cause again, I keep pointing out that I'm kind of a dope myself and I know that that's bullshit. Like, yeah. So, yeah. It, it makes sense when you think about it very superficially. If you spend more than five minutes on it, it loses that. And the, yeah. the biggest problem is that's less, that's five minutes is probably four minutes longer than Trump's attention span. He, he almost always listens to the most recent person he spoke to. Mm -hmm. um, you can tell when he goes out on stage and he's unscripted. He just says something that he heard. He, he, he didn't seriously consider it. He didn't mm -hmm. weigh the pros and cons. He didn't weigh it against all the other, other evidence he heard. You know, it's typically he'll, you know, there was those famous series that The Daily Show would always put on where he'd say basically what was on Fox News the previous night, almost word for word. And so the thought that there's this person totally unqualified, you know, you have Fauci, who spent his whole life battling infectious diseases in his in one ear. And you have, you know, no offense, a Rob, a radiologist with very little <laughs> training in 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 virology, epidemiology, anything mm -hmm. in his other ear and Trump. We'll just listen to the guy that was most convincing personally. He's not going to weigh it out. So it is really scary. Yeah. Yeah. I Well, I, I understand how Trump buys it because I, I, after all this time, I feel like I, I have a pretty good look at him. But the guy telling him that, who claims to be an expert, has he not Googled to make sure that he's like, I do this all the time. I go, oh, yeah, that's this. And then I go, wait a minute. Did I just hear that or hmm? And then I'll look it up and find out if the thing that I thought was true was true or not. There's, and sometimes there's two good ways to do that, though. One is to yeah. Google it and to look for the evidence um, itself. And yeah. the other is to look what other people said. And when you when you do it the second way, even the first way, you're prone to it. You're going to look mostly at the things that say the thing you already thought. Hmm. So, you know, I've I've historically I've been fighting against the whole nature of, of stratifying suicide risk. Um, because it, it's been shown in multiple studies not to be helpful. But at the same time, when I'm looking at a study, if, it, if the hype title of it is, you know, stratification of suicide risk fails, I, that's the study. I'm going to read it fully, all that. I see <laughs> another one, and it's so like... So what, what does that we, mean, stratification? We effectively... Well, well, you know, in a lot of medical conditions, especially in emergency situations, um, you look at things and you try and quickly determine whether or not the person's at high risk for the condition, medium risk, low risk, or no risk. Okay. So an example would be heart attacks. You know, if you come in 55, diabetes, family history of heart attacks, poor diet, and sedentary lifestyle, okay. 
your your pre-test probability is is up there and so you might be a little bit more targeted at your interventions for for preventing heart attacks and in suicide unfortunately uh suicides themselves i mean this is a good thing suicides themselves are very rare the downside to that is they're so rare that it's almost impossible to detect a difference between high and low risk okay so on average the you know about 14 per hundred thousand per year people die by suicide a high risk population is 50 per hundred thousand per year that means that 99.995% of people don't die by suicide in the high risk group and 99.999% don't die in the low risk group. So we can actually effectively tell the difference between those things. And yet, right. you know, many people will try and sort those hats. And, and there's a lot of evidence showing that it's not worth it to sort because there's so many false positives um, that basically are all you're treating is false false okay. positives. So, so stratification would mean something like men are more prone or something like, like making those kinds Just, of claims. Just yeah, targeting a population, or yeah. you know, oh, um, you know, you have a depression, so we're, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do X treatment because you're higher risk for suicide. Hmm. But most people with depression don't die of suicide. Most people who are male don't die by suicide. Most people with a history of suicidal thinking don't die of suicide. 99 out of 100 jumpers of off the Golden, uh, Golden Gate Bridge that survive don't die by suicide. So almost everything we have that's an indication of a risk for suicide, the most common outcome is for the person not to die of suicide. Right. So it's all low risk. So if I was a computer that just said, nope, they won't die, nope, they won't die, I'd be right a lot more than if I tried to stratify suicide Right, risk. okay, I understand. So, yeah. but when I'm reading through the articles, because that's my preconceived notion, I, I'm so biased. I have to I have to battle against it. And so I've taken a new strategy. And I recommend this to anyone. You know, I've been doing this a lot in the COVID days is search for the evidence that disproves what you believe. Mm -hmm. Specifically seek it out yeah, and see if it's convincing to you or, or, or at least look at it through the most favorable interpretation. So I'll read some, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Michael Levitt and the things that he's saying. Um, I'll read through his stuff and I'll give him the most charitable interpretation and try and see if there's anything there. And of course, I can find data in the stuff that even even bad science does. Mm -hmm. So, it's a it's a much better way. And and the democratization of of information has turned basically the internet into a whatever you believe you'll get fed. Right. If I, my Twitter feed is full of woke doctors who care a lot about socioeconomic medicine, and um, it's I, I don't see a lot else in my feed. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't see any other things. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. We've talked about such things in the past. Rob and I are both pretty active in the Vancouver skeptic community, uh, and uh, we try to practice that kind of thing ourselves. Of yeah, yeah, giving the most charitable uh, view of somebody's position, uh, and that often I find makes it so that you really do find out what's wrong with it too. Like when you yep. do give them that most charitable, you go, you know, everybody else is going to argue this. But you're really saying this, but here's why that's wrong. And and so even when you do that, it can help you really cement your position because you start to understand the misunderstanding that other people have. Uh, awesome. That's why this show exists. And it's the opposite of straw manning, which is the worst way to do it. Yeah. You know, someone will argue against me and they'll use the silliest version of my argument and argue against that. And I'm like, well, that's not what I was saying. Um, so So if you overextend. Um, it works a lot better. What? So you're saying nobody commits suicide? Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm completely familiar with those people. <laughs> my whole Darth Vader doesn't like straw manning. <laughs> Even the Vader Dark Lord of the Sith wears man. a mask. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, but you know who doesn't wear a mask, or at least doesn't wear one right, would be Batman. 
That's true. Uh, moving on to our next story. Uh, the Batman pauses production as Robert Pattinson contracts COVID-19. So Two celebrities this, this so past week. Yeah. But yeah, if you Robert look at Pattinson. Batman's mask, it covers all the way up here and leaves this part completely open. And, and also the bottom yeah. of his nose tends to be like it covers up to here. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it's like it's an anti-mask. It's, it's an wrong, anti-maskers mask. It's wrong mask, Batman. I'm sorry. It's totally. Bane had it right. Ba- yes, yeah. that's right. <laughs> uh, I was raised in the pandemic. <laughs> I was born uh, in the coronavirus. Shaped by it. You merely contracted it from it. <laughs> uh, let's see. We've also got some more news about more coronavirus cases. Uh, so there's a main wedding. Did we talk about it? There's like a big main wedding uh, a while ago. And a really interesting news about that. And I'm not, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but uh, 147 coronavirus cases that, uh, tied to that wedding. And three deaths, and here's the here's the really painful thing: the three who died as a result of the outbreak did not attend the wedding. So it's exactly what we're talking about: that people yeah. went to a wedding, did not take this thing seriously, didn't mask up at the wedding, caught coronavirus from somebody at the wedding, came back home, gave it to somebody else, and they died. Wear a mask. Yeah. It, it displays the selfishness of, of those decisions, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're seeing... The, people that died didn't have that, you know, didn't have that ethos of, I'll go to this wedding anyway. They yeah. were maybe doing their own thing. Maybe they were protecting themselves. Maybe yeah. they were wearing masks wherever they went. And then some selfish person, you know, went out and got infected and brought it back. That's the reason for my wish. I'm pretty sure it was that story that made me feel that way. I was <laughs> just like, can we just at least make it so people who care can't get it? Uh, speaking nope. of selfishness, uh, there have been 18,000 selfish Ameri- Americans trying to sightsee in Canada, despite the border closure. <laughs> They've been keeping track of the ones who've tried. 18,000. 18,000. 18, trying to come up. Stay out, eh? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, the people Bill, that really, you, you read that article, and the thing that really mystifies me are the people that get on airplanes from overseas and come to Canada and customs and border patrols like, no, you, you can't come in. <laughs> Boom. Denied entry at the airport. Well, I, geez, I hope that trip of a lifetime was worth all the money you spent on it. Cause there's no way insurance is going to pony up for this claim. I guarantee 80% of them went, what are they going to do? Turn me away once I'm exactly. there. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah, yes. they do that. They, they do that all day long, so all they don't the t- tend to feel very bad about that. Tom Hanks was in a movie about that. Remember, <laughs> he was the guy who lived at the airport because he arrived, and they went, "No, you can't." I can't even remember what the name of the freaking movie was, but he arrives at the. It was a true story too. Guy arrived at the airport, I think, fleeing a horrible country, and the airport went, "We can't let you in," and. He went. Right. I can't he had go to back. stay in this particular section of the airport yeah. that was tr- considered true international ground. Right. And, and then yeah, everybody rallied was... around him. They started bringing him food and like treating him. <laughs> All the people at the airport got to know him, and he was like apparently a really sweet guy. I think the story was he eventually was allowed the terminal. Thank you, uh, Syndicate. Yes. That was the name of the movie. <sighs> right. uh, oh, and Syndicate also adds, "My friend's roommate." Tried to bring her boyfriend up from Washington State. Man, I got people uh, I want to bring up. I got so I got friends who they could come up here and weather it with me. Like I would love to go. Come on up, but I you can't. You can't come up. 
Not until we set up little huts we put them in at the border for two weeks. Right? While or we, uh, those rapid saliva-based tests come along. You know, if we had a cheap, fast test that was reasonably accurate, that's pretty I think we could start to open up a lot. But um, and Health Canada only last week backed down and said, okay, maybe we'll consider it. But now we have to actually look at a test that we can roll out at scale. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's something that can be done at home. The, the current rapid test that's being rolled out across the U.S., still needs some operator input it, it involves yeah. some degree of technical expertise it's not yeah. quite a home test yet we'll get there it's going to take time yeah and that's going to be know, a, a big a big uh, leap forward just south of us washington they're having about 500 cases a day they only have 7.5 million people you know so it's only 50 percent more than bc you know our, our i think we hit our record at what 170 or i, I don't know what our re- most recent record was but you know so so just south of the border, um, you know, an hour and a half drive away, um, their rates are are probably twice what ours are. And that's a great example yeah. of the sort of difference in policy. Mm-hmm. Yes, well said. Um, so, would you? It's five to eight. Do we want to zip ahead a little bit here, Joe? Sure. Let's skip over the queue. St- yeah. The- so <laughs> skip, skip to disinformation. Yeah, we always find reasons to avoid talking about Q because it's just. Ugh. dumb and depressing but we're gonna have to bite the bullet at some point we're gonna do a bit on cue tom hanks doesn't eat babies to live forever and <laughs> every time you read about cue you think that can't be what they really think but it 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 gets bizarre <laughs> and more bizarre and bizarre each time it's, I, it's quite yeah. yeah yeah i i would love to i don't know how we would get this information but i would love to see the path from fairly rational and I know that it's steps, right? You don't go from fairly rational to the the where what Q is really. You mm-hmm. you get a little bit and a little bit, and then all of a sudden you find yourself there. You just edge yourself into it. And I would love to see a study of how that path goes. Uh, all right. Well, and and uh, a few weeks ago, I read a really neat piece by a social psychiatrist. I wish I could remember her name, but um, she made the point that because there seems to be evidence of some delusional ideation within Trump's own thinking that it's much easier for him in uh, the intense kind of devotion he arouses to create a shared delusional disorder in his most ardent followers, which would Mm -hmm. go some way to explaining the just profound unreachability of somebody who is a dedicated Trumper and, and the susceptibility to something like Q in that group where especially when he adds kind of an indirect blessing like well i i think they're patriots and i think they like me and oh okay they love the leader and Uh, he thinks that they're good they've had four years of excusing the bullshit that he spreads four years of convincing themselves how to believe what he says even though it flies in the face of reality so they're completely primed for this kind of thing and the instant that he mentions q in a positive thing they're like well that's another thing that we got to believe now because there's no way that I've been wrong for four years. Nope, got to protect what's in my side yeah. of my head here. Keep believing this nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that accelerates the descent of Q into uh, like clinically bizarre levels, not just yeah. merely yeah. you know ordinary bizarreness, uh, but like clinically bizarre, like yeah. things that are not understandable anymore. Kind of like our first disinformation and scam story. He said, trying to segue away from Q, uh, which is <laughs> <laughs> so a wealthy doctor went to his own employer for a COVID-19 test. 
uh, he knew that the test itself cost eight dollars. Eight dollars. Yeah. He they charged the ER charged his insurance. Oh wait, let's see if Tyler can guess. Tyler, can you guess? How much money do you think his insurance charged for the eight dollar test? I'll say a hundred. A hundred dollars. Okay. Okay. Wow. Uh, ten thousand well, nine hundred uh, Even more surprising, the insurer. Even more surprising, the insurer paid in full. That is the ten thousand dollar military hammer. That is just yeah, American. Now, what's grift. really fascinating about yeah. that story is the doctor that came forward with this story. He's anti Medicare for all. And he brought this story forward in the U.S. because he said, if we don't get a grip on stuff like this, we will never be able to rationally persuade people that private medicine is good. So we have to tamp this stuff down. So if you're you know, <laughs> radically alienating your own allies, yeah. um, you may have a pricing problem. <laughs> don't worry. The market will figure it all out. Right. The people will die. Will solve there's yeah. no way they could change uh, the name of the thing. Multiplication. I got. I had a. I had a. Was playing basketball and I got a cut right here, and I decided. <laughs> oh shoot! I got to go to the ER. It was open enough that I knew it should be closed, and um, I sat in the waiting room. I didn't see a doctor. A nurse came in and put on a steri strip, and it approximated pretty well. So that was it. Came home, got the bill. Two thousand three hundred dollars. Um, and it was a steri strip and sitting in a waiting room <laughs> and, wow. and some of the some of the billing items were clearly things that it's obvious that what they're trying to do is maximize the amount they can get out of the insurance company now, now I was Canadian I was not insured so I fought it and I ended up paying $85 okay. but it was things like there was an x-ray fee I didn't get an x-ray there was no x-ray done there was a consultation to a cardiologist nobody did an ECG what? there was nothing <laughs> These things, I had an itemized bill of things that wow. didn't didn't happen to me. Yeah. Uh, these were these were just phantom things that were being added to try and 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 suck my insurance company dry. You know, if I had one. Okay, so this is a good Straight time. Up fraud. Yeah. So Rob, uh, well, you're both doctors. Yeah. So I I know that everything's that, that still like if I go to the to the hospital or to a doctor here in BC and they do something for me, they eventually bill the government, right? They send off the whole thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. So how does that not happen here is, is, I think, my question, right? Like, we obviously have oversight and, like, why well, can they get away with that? It's but you direct can't here. So Rob and I bill the government directly. Mm -hmm. we, we do something and we bill the government. Um, and, and we have the knowledge of personal responsibility. Rob and I both know that if I were to, oh, hey, we've hung out today on viral transmissions. I'm going to bill a psychiatric consult to Rob because he asked me to on you. Um, and, and you'll be my patient. Um, I know that if that were ever audited, I would be sued by the government. Right. They come right at me. Like there's a direct personal responsibility that, mm. that keeps me in line. Now, of course, I could choose to build a government for things that I didn't do, but that's fraud. And fraud is detected through fraud detection mechanisms. Right. Um, there's auditing of, of physician codes and those types of things and, and shadow billing and those types of things. So, so does America not have that? Or is it just because there's so many different things that it's, it's the middleman. hard? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's the middleman. It's the fact that the, the hospital is trying to make a profit and the insurance company is trying to make a profit. So, so it's, mm. it's an injection of money into the equation it's 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 at the expect at the expense of the average american the average american paying three or four times what canada does for healthcare. yeah yeah 
Damn. Bad. Uh, should we move on to Denialist of the Week, Rob? Yeah, well, and before we get to um, the the winner, we always like to start with our our runners up and uh, lives. Our first one is a nice brief video here from uh, radio host Mark Dolan. Oh no! We'll just <laughs> we'll just let the video roll. It'll speak for itself. Here we go. And there we yeah. Okay, here we go. All right, excellent. If you want to save lives and get the country back on track, the only option is to get back to normal. And the first step to achieving that is to get rid of these wretched, god-awful, damned, (laughs) blinking, uncomfortable, scientifically empty, useless masks. This is talk radio. If you... (laughs) What an asshole. (laughs) <laughs> He's such a strong man, too. He really, he really tore that back. I know, right? <laughs> what, a, what a masculine figure that was. I was almost going to so, agree with him. I was like, yeah, get rid of those. There's really cool ones you can get now. Like with, you know, cool patterns and stuff. But that's not what his point nope. was. That's not what his point that's, was. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so that's an honorable mention. Um, we also had uh, the Minnesota, Minnesota Vikings uh, quarterback who thinks masks are dumb. Yeah, uh, he was on a podcast, uh, and he was they, they, they asked him, on a spectrum of one, masks are stupid, and you're all a bunch of lemmings, and ten is, I'm not leaving the master bathroom for ten years, where do you land? He said, I'm not going to call anybody stupid for the trouble it could get me in, which means I want to, but I hate criticism. But I'm about a point zero 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 one. That's Kirk Cousins. There you go. But he can throw balls real good. Until yep. he gets yep. permanent heart damage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, look, look, everybody. This guy that can throw a football has opinions about public health. Doesn't everybody these days? Why would anybody? Doesn't yeah. Everybody. Why? Well, as the two physicists said, you know, epidemiology is intellectually very easy. <laughs> if you can't trust two yeah, physicists. Well, yeah, our, our simplified mathematical model is simple. Yes. <laughs> Huh. How about that? All but right. uh, we've, uh, it's, it's, it's always something very special, very special, um, a phenomenon known as Nobel disease, which is if you're smart enough to win a Nobel in your field, this is essentially proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have demonstrated competence in your domain. You have furthered the human enterprise with unique discoveries, you've created knowledge that hasn't existed before, and it has benefited all of humanity. However, comma, many Nobel laureates believe that this may give them the authority to speak outside of their domains, such as, for instance, Linus Pauling, the chemistry uh, Nobel laureate, who then sort of spent the rest of his life uh, trying to persuade the world that vitamin C was the cure for the common cold. Um, or Luc Montagnier, who discovered the human immunodeficiency virus and now is trying to convince the world that uh, basic principles of homeopathy are sound because maybe water does have memory. Um, well, there is a rampant case of Nobel disease in the coronavirus world. 
Yes, there is. Uh, he and I have become good friends. We fought a few, <laughs> few times on Twitter. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go live with my stream here. So this is Michael Levitt. Um, Michael Levitt is a, a PhD, uh, not a PhD. Um, I don't think he's actually a doctor. I think he, I, I think he, um, a PhD soon. I'm not sure if he finished. Maybe he did. Um, oh, that's delicious. But, <laughs> but um, he did win a really important uh, Nobel Prize. Uh, he he's part of a team that um, was really important for figuring out the chemistry of biological molecules. Um, he's he's credited with um, uh, really the the ability to model complex um, chemical. Uh, structures beautifully and 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 contributed to science in in measurable ways so of course in 2020 he's now an epidemiologist and a COVID scientist even though these things are not related this is this is the hard part is he is a biophysicist and a professor of structural biology and yet he is extremely and supremely unqualified to talk about coronavirus fatalities which is what he's almost entirely dedicated to now. And that just shows how specialized science is. If you told me that a PhD biologist couldn't talk about coronavirus, I'd be like, of course he can, he's a PhD biologist. But he's in a very highly specialized field of biomolecular science. And epidemiology is a human field. It's a field, a study of numbers and, and deaths and, and things that are completely unrelated. And so um, all of the hard work that he did to get his Nobel Prize all of the structural knowledge he gained, working with the best of the best, understanding things, taking things in a new direction. He skipped that entire part. And now he's just looking at graphs and showing them and saying, this is what they say. Um, and it's, it's, how no, it's how I think Nobel disease happens. I think the person just forgets that the reason they got the Nobel Prize was hard work and good science. And they, they substitute that with, I'm brilliant. Mm -hmm. Which of course, they, they are smart. But there, there's no such thing as someone who can just know epidemiology. You need foundations in epidemiology before you can progress to an expert knowledge of that. And so I think just that that substitution. Um, but um, way back when, uh, when I when he first came onto my map was was July 25th. Around this time on this graph, these were the excess deaths in in the. Um, uh, um, the excess deaths in the United States, and you can see the sharp the sharp gain in, in April. As things started to come down, you had a whole bunch of COVID denialists, and and Michael um, Levitt really jumped on this, saying, "Oh, it's almost over. COVID's almost over." And so by July 18th, um, you see this tail end falling. He was around here in July 25th, and he was looking at that and saying, "You know what? COVID's going to come down," but. This is the part that brought me onto his radar. I, I don't, I'm not a viral epidemiologist, but I'm a mortality epidemiologist. I look at CDC mortality data all the time. I am constantly looking at mortality data. And, and it was so obvious that what he was looking at pointing down was just reporting lag. It's just simple reporting lag. The CDC takes about four to eight weeks to get its final counts of deaths. And so this dip is just the underestimate of not having enough reported yet. And so sure enough, he made this prediction on, Ju on July 25th that, oh, COVID deaths, excess deaths are almost over and by August 25th will be gone. But I can actually show what it looks like each week and you can see this leg. Well, this is what it looked like um, the next time, the, the next week when it was added. After that, 
so there's the difference. There's 10,000 deaths in one week that are added, and, and that and that's that's over four weeks. Sorry, this this lag continually goes up and up and up, and and to the point where on July 25th, when he was saying COVID's almost over, um, it was obvious that it wasn't because this is the time that the deaths were spiking up, and of course in in 20 in in now at the end of August. Um, this line has continued to go up and it's, it's, it's right about here. But of course, if the, if this red line is what it looked like when Michael Levitt said that everyone would think that he was an idiot, but because the, the line was pointing down at, at when he, when he actually said it. So he said it right here. Oh, good. It is almost over, but look at this. There's no <laughs> way you look at this and think that that's where it is. It's just a basic error. And then you look at his, his, you know, he's been very prolific in making predictions he said that Israel would have 10 deaths. They have not had just 10 deaths. Um, you know, he, he famously said that Italy's deaths would, would be in the, measured in the thousands, and they were definitely measured in the 10,000s. And, and he historically pins himself to this idea that he called the exact number of Chinese deaths that would occur. But of course, he made 10 predictions over the course of four weeks about China. And his most recent prediction was when the curve had almost completely ended. And he, he predicted that there'd just be a few more deaths and deaths were already slowing down. So um, he, he really is. Um, and then he has this really annoying tone. I don't know, Rob, if you've seen his posts on Twitter. <laughs> no, but he's, I, I, well, I've seen his... he's bizarrely cheerful about being wrong. Like, oh, I, I guess I made this graph wrong or, oh, maybe I should learn a little bit more about this or, you know, whatever. Like, he's just always like, <laughs> oh, interesting. Huh? Well, I guess maybe I shouldn't use the numbers this way. Uh, maybe next week I'll do it. And then he makes the same mistake last week. I really think he has like Dory's brain from Finding Nemo. <laughs> he, he constantly makes the same mistake yeah. to the point where it's almost silly. Um, and and the problem is he's followed by COVID denialists who cite him because he's a PhD Nobel winning biologist. He is he's, he's the worst denializer. He's the worst denialist you can have because he has structural le legitimacy behind him. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I can't imagine how hard it was to battle Linus Pauling on vitamin C as a science caring person in, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And at the same time, even Fauci held up. Fauci doesn't have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> you know, you can you can you can look at Fauci and go, oh, well, Michael Levitt knows more. He's a biologist with a with a with a Nobel Prize. Mm. So it's, he's the worst type of denialist there is. It's really, really quite bad. Yeah, his, his, his uh, prediction accuracy is on a level with Karnak the Magnificent. <laughs> it's really bad. For those, for those of you who remember Johnny Carson, maybe us all again. Retrofitted <laughs> predictions. So congratulations, yeah. Michael yeah. Levitt, our denialist of the week on viral of transmissions. Of the week. Uh, yeah. Okay, so should we get to our good stuff? It's pretty darn good. Time for the good stuff. Yep. It's time for the mouthwash. The best part of the show. I think what we'll do is uh, we'll say our goodbyes and we'll leave them with this and just let it play out because it is a few minutes long. Uh, we're Rob and I are both big fans of Puddles, Puddles Pity Party. Uh, Puddles is a clown. You can find him on YouTube who does covers of music. The man has a just gorgeous voice. Uh, and I remember sharing this song when it first came out. Somebody has mashed up uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surprise you all with what the song is, but somebody has mashed up a puddle song with uh, videos from uh, the lake where all the Trump supporters' boats were getting flooded. And, uh, lake Tyndall, yes. Like, uh, where a number of sinking ships fled a rat. Yeah, yeah. 
this is just delicious. Here we go. Full screen. All right. Just sit right back and you hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailing lad, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Tyler, uh, thank you so much for joining us. So much interesting stuff. Uh, Everybody else, we will see you all next week. Please uh, remember to spread the word, not the virus. Wear a mask, wash your hands. You know all the stuff if you're watching this for sure. Everyone's looking for a link for that, though. They're looking for... Oh, I will. You know what? I absolutely will. Hold on. Let me give you that Yeah, we're going to give you a link here. Hang on. Here's the link. Don't bail out just yet. There it is. There it is. There it is. You get the link. Enjoy uh, Puddles Pity Puddles Pity Party. You can find him on YouTube just by looking for that. He has a whole bunch of covers like that. Uh, sometimes doing different different lyrics to the songs uh, right there. Of course, the Gilligan's Island theme to uh, to uh, the Led Zeppelin song. Um, <laughs> um, I can't even think of it Aww. now. But it's fine. It's Led Zeppelin. Uh, anyway, uh, that's Stairway to Heaven. Uh, Stairway to Heaven. Of yeah. course. Uh, Dr. Rob Tarswell, I'm Joe Fulgham. This has been Tyler Black, and we'll see you next week. Spread the word, not the virus. Okay, now we're out. Good night, all. Bye, everybody. (laughs) 